Our scripture this morning is from the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn uh, here in the sanctuary or at home uh, to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read this morning verses 25 uh, to 29. Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaped, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me again, please? Once again, our Father, we come before you. And we ask that you would be pleased to come and to feed your sheep by the power of your spirit. We ask that we would see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, and that his sheep would hear his voice and know him and follow him. We pray that you would move in our hearts, in our minds, that we might know you, that we might trust you, that we might be drawn close to you and offer ourselves to you promptly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We'll preach this morning on our unshakable reality. In 1935, a biologist at Harvard University by the name of Hans Zimmer, or Zinzer, wrote a book that became quite popular in its time. Though he had written many books and articles before, they were academic and technical in nature. This was the first book he'd written with the general public in mind. The title of his book was, quote, of rats, lice, and history. In it, he gave a history of infectious diseases and their impact on world events. I want to read you just a couple sentences from his book. He said, again and again, the forward march of Roman power and world organization was interrupted by the only force against which political genius and military valor were utterly helpless. Epidemic disease. Unopposed by any barriers. And when it came, 
as though carried by storm clouds, all other things gave way, and men crouched in terror, abandoning all their other quarrels, undertakings, and ambitions until the tempest had blown over. You know, for all our modern advancement, we find ourselves in much the same situation in 2020 as did the ancient Romans. Now we've been in a study of Hebrews for the better part of a year now, and we had just come to the end of uh, chapter 12, but it seems to me that this last passage of Hebrews 12 is most appropriate for our situation. It speaks here of God shaking down the heavens and the earth, or the earth and the heavens. Of course, this will ultimately come to its fulfillment at the last day when the final shaking down of the created order comes. But in the meantime, the Lord sends periods of shaking down. He sends smaller scale judgments on the earth leading up to the final judgment, like a whistle warning the approach of a coming freight train. And this passage tells us what we must hang on to in times when we feel shaken to the very core. Let's look at it together. First in this passage, we see who does the shaking. Who does the shaking? Look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now here he quotes the Old Testament prophet Haggai, chapter two, verses six and seven of Haggai, where the Lord says that he will shake the heavens and the earth. Notice the Lord does not simply warn us, or as we would say now, give us a heads up that there will come a time of shaking down. No, the Lord promised that he will do the shaking. Why does he bring this up here in Hebrews 12? These people were being shaken. The world that they had known all their lives was crumbling. These were Hebrews. They'd been raised under the old covenant. They'd been raised under what was still practiced in their time of the Mosaic law. The sacrificial system and the ceremonies of the Old Testament, this was at the very core of their identity. And now it was over. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. There's no more need for animal sacrifices and ceremonies and the temple. Jesus has fulfilled it all once and for all by his own sacrifice of himself. And while this is the most wonderful thing of all, that the blood of Jesus shed once and for all takes our sins away once and for all, 
This also meant the end of their whole way of life. When they had come to embrace this reality that Jesus was the fulfillment of all they had believed and hoped for and all that God had promised, for many, their faith in Jesus Christ had caused their own personal family and societal structures to crumble. They'd been rejected by their loved ones. They were losing their place in society. They were losing the degree of religious liberty the Roman government had afforded to Judaism as a legitimate religion in their eyes. And they were tempted to go back, to leave Jesus and go back. So the author reminds them that this shaking down did not take God by surprise, nor should it surprise them. In fact, God promised that he would shake everything, the heavens and the earth. Notice in verse 26, it says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. Now that time is a reference to when God met with his people at Mount Sinai in the Exodus. He describes that encounter earlier in chapter 12. If you have your Bible open, Hebrews 12, look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The Lord literally shook the earth. The people were going through a massive change coming out of slavery in Egypt. They were receiving the law of God, their constitution as a nation, both their religious and their civil constitution. This was a far bigger change than when these colonies became independent states. And when God came to deliver his word, the law, their constitution, the word, That was to control every aspect of their life from now on. God shook the earth. And he said he would do it again. When in the fullness of time he sent his son and his son fulfilled everything and shed his blood on the cross, we read that the earth was shaken. The sun went down at noon. The very heavens were shaken and God himself desecrated his own temple, ripping the veil from top to bottom because it was all over. It was finished. So the author reminds his people and he's reminding us today, this is the way God 
works. He shakes things down. He not only allows it, he controls it. That's who does the shaking. Secondly, in this passage, we see the purpose of the shaking. Look at verse 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. It says the Lord shakes things down in order to remove things. Things that are temporal. Things that don't last. Book of Revelation records seven seals in chapter 6 through 8. The first four of these are famously known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four horses and riders bring judgment on the earth. The first rider on a white horse is a picture of powerful empires conquering the earth like Rome. The second rider on a red horse is a picture of violence. The third rider on a black horse announces exorbitant prices for grain, indicating famine, extreme inflation, and economic disaster brought about by war. Let me read you Revelation 6, 8, the fourth rider on a pale, what we might best translate as a peaky horse. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Notice this includes pestilence. Plague. Disease. And notice their power is limited. They're only given authority over a quarter of the earth. This is not the final judgment. But most of all, the message is that Jesus controls all of this. Revelation 6.1 says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, the Lamb on his throne, Jesus Christ. He's running all of this. He sends these riders with judgment, with pestilence, all over the earth. But why? Why does our Lord Jesus send these messengers of destruction over the earth from time to time? Dennis Johnson at uh, Westminster Seminary in California says it well. He says that churches must realize that through his sovereignty over all things from rulers to bacteria, Christ will send all sorts of limited providential judgments on the Roman imperial system, exposing the emptiness 
of its politico-military confidence and its religious pretensions. That's why Jesus sends these judgments on the earth. In order to shake us down and to shake us loose from all the things that ultimately do not last. Do we not have empty politico-military confidence and religious pretensions from which we need to be shaken loose? <clears throat> As Christians, we're called to exercise stewardship. We're told to provide for our families. We're told to work hard so we may have something to share with those in need. We are told to leave an inheritance for our children. And in plain English, this clearly indicates that we are to save money. Don't let it burn a hole in your pocket. You can't share anything with the needy or leave it for your children if you spend it all. And yet, it's so easy to start to invest our hope for the future in the money we've invested. And of course, it's just a paper loss, at least for those of us normal people who don't get in inside information on the Senate Intelligence Committee. But times like this show us how much hope we have invested in the wrong place. And God shakes us down. I fear that the four keys on my computer, the D, J, I, and A, might stop working. As many times a day as I have gone to Google and typed in D, J-I-A to find out how low the Dow Jones Industrial Average has plummeted in the last couple of weeks. But this is why God shakes things down to strip away the things that ultimately do not last. So we see who does the shaking, the purpose of the shaking, thirdly in this passage, we see what cannot be shaken. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have something. All who are in Jesus Christ have something that cannot be shaken. Jesus said it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and corrupt and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's a safe place. A place where nothing rusts, nothing decomposes, no thief breaks in. There is no sickness or disease or sorrow or death. 
is heaven. And we're not there yet. But make no mistake about it. Scripture says it already belongs to us now. Our citizenship is already on the books up there and it's already in our hearts down here. And you know there's nothing like going through a shakedown to help us get our priorities in order and see what really matters. One of the great times of shaking down in world history was the Protestant Reformation. Our ancestors, our spiritual and biological ancestors were kicked out. Some left for mixed motives. The church. But nevertheless, their whole world was turned upside down. And you all know those famous words the great reformer Martin Luther wrote. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We see panic all around us. Grocery stores are cleaned out quicker than they can be stocked. Because, in general, our society has all its hope placed in things that ultimately will not last. And when it's shaken, it's panic. That's why politics has become a matter of religious devotion in our country on all sides. In general, as a society, we have no hope in any kingdom beyond this passing world. But God, right now, is giving us an opportunity to sort things out and place our hope in what cannot be shaken. So we see who does the shaking, the purpose of the shaking, what cannot be shaken, and fourthly and finally, we see the shaking we need. The shaking we need. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God once shook the earth at Mount Sinai. The people heard it. They felt it. They were terrified by it. And then they went on with their lives and largely forgot all about it. So we are told not to refuse him who is speaking. God is sending a portent of the final judgment. He's warning us that something far bigger is coming so that we would prepare ourselves for that day. There is a place of safety 
of joy and confidence on the last day. And that is to be safe in Jesus Christ. Covered by him. Protected from the judgment we deserve because he has already taken it for us in our place. This is a call to get into Jesus Christ. Accept him. Receive him. Rest upon him alone for salvation as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. If this is what it takes to wake you up, so be it. It's the shaking down you need. But there's another way we need to be shaken. Look at the middle of verse 28. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is a call for believers too. We can get too familiar with God. And every now and then, he sends a shaking down to remind us that he is not one to be trifled with. Yes, we are loved with an everlasting love. Yes, he is our father. But our father also happens to be a consuming fire. And we need to come before him with reverence and all. And I want to share with you some thoughts that a friend and a colleague in the ministry shared with me yesterday. He wrote to me and said, at the present moment, and with new realities and routines taking shape, I've had some time to wonder what the Lord means for us to think and pray about while all the churches are prohibited from meeting or choosing not to meet. I've never seen anything like this where gathered worship has ceased on a massive scale for an indefinite time. Typical tragedies such as hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and mass shootings may disrupt when and where Christians gather, but the gathering still happens and usually with added fervor. Now, most especially in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe, there is little to no gathered worship being offered to the Lord. Has this ever happened before in Western history? Even in wartime, pastors have found ways together with their people to lead them in sufficiently accustomed forms of worship. Yesterday, while sawing away at a fallen limb, the verse came to mind. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Amos 5.23, and a second like it. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become burdensome. I'm weary of bearing them. Isaiah 1.14. Having visited a good many churches over the past few years, I've seen firsthand how much our gathered worship services are filled with noise. The noise of instruments amplified to such volume you cannot hear yourself sing, much less the person next to you. So how can you possibly address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs 
The noise of unnecessarily long and humorous sermon illustrations that entertain far more than instruct. The noise of whipping up excitement in the congregation rather than stilling them before the holiness of the Lord, not to mention the noise of modern worship songs that do little to exalt God or cultivate holier affections. Among his many purposes in this pestilence could one be to suspend all the noise that has become burdensome to him. I know from experience that pastors are often so busy week to week that unless they are granted a sabbatical, they never have the time to step back and reflect on the questions of why do I preach the way I do, lead worship the way I do, pastor the way I do. Perhaps the Lord has instituted a near universal suspension of public gathered worship so that we will ask those questions. We're in the middle of a great shaking down with God. What do you and I need to reevaluate while God is giving us time, shaking the world as we know it down to the very core. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.